Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Karen Goldrick about an integrative approach to cancer treatment. Dr. Goldrick graduated from the University of Sydney in 1987 and has worked in small animal practice in Sydney and the UK with an interest in holistic veterinary medicine. She has studied acupuncture through the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society. She has also studied traditional Chinese herbal medicine via the College of Integrative Veterinary Medicine and the Sydney College of Traditional Chinese Medicine and is completing her graduate diploma in veterinary Chinese herbal medicine. She has studied Western herbal medicine via the Sydney College of Natural Therapies and the Veterinary Information Network and also animal rehabilitation. Dr. Goldrick has studied integrative cancer care via the College of Integrative Veterinary Medicine and is currently undertaking additional studies in integrative oncology in practice via bioceuticals. Karen writes regularly for the Wellbeing magazine and was the editor of the Journal of Veterinary Botanical Medicine for the Veterinary Botanical Medicine Association until 2013 and the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapy Journal. She currently works as a holistic veterinarian at All Natural Vet Care in Sydney. Hi Karen and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest with us today. I, I hope you're well. I am, thank you. Yes. Great, awesome. So Karen, before we jump into our topic today, um, which is I'm talking about an integrative approach to managing cancer. I just am really curious to know um, your sort of your personal and professional background and how you um, became a vet and how you were interested in becoming a vet initially and um, what sort of drew you to integrative medicine and, and where you are today. Okay. Oh, well, it's been quite a long journey. Um, I was always interested in becoming a vet, and we're talking some years back now, back when I did the HSC, um, but I felt I'd never get the mark, so I sort of didn't really, um, um, I guess I didn't put that as number one on my um, courses to yeah. do, yeah. Um, but in my year, we were so lucky, they made a mistake marking the 3 d English paper, and we all got a remark, um, oh. which meant that our but they call it the ATAR now, but for me it was the HSC mark, went yeah. up by about 10 points. Oh, wow. Um, and that sort of, um, I guess, springboarded Got me you over the line. Science, um, although that was rather late. I, they were already willing to turn one by the time I joined the crew. But that's how I sort of really ended up doing it. So I feel like it was almost like a happy accident. Yeah. Um, and then I, I guess, um, you know, initially I was very conventional. Um, I My first job was in small animal medicine in Sydney. I did the travelling overseas, working in London thing that yep. we all did back then. Yep. Um, did a bit more exotic work, um, came back and did some emergency work and eventually sort of fell into small animal medicine practice in Sydney. Um, but I think what happened is I became really frustrated with, you know, the fact that all my patients with chronic disease just ended up on antibiotics and anti-inflammatories and I felt like yeah. that we were never really making any progress with them. Um, and, um, you know, I was also wanting to move away from annual vaccines and, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe even look at better diet options in line with the sort of philosophy I was kind of developing as I had my own kids and had my own family. Yeah. Um, so I sort of started doing a little bit of self-taught acupuncture and Western herbal medicine. Um, I think we must have had a bit of internet back in those days, so I was yeah. just able to do a little bit of that myself. Yeah. Um, and eventually, I guess, um, I joined 
here, All Natural Vet Care, in 2005. And so okay. I've been here ever since. Yeah, right. And since joining All Natural Vet Care, um, which is a clinic in Sydney, have you done any further qualifications or any further training or study or is it all sort of just become, you know, um, self-taught and then all organically developed over the years? Oh, I guess it's a combination of both. I mean, I think every day I learn more things, um, yeah. another day, another skill, I think. Um, and um, But I have, you know, I've now got my... Um, acupuncture certification through the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been, I'm actually sort of under gradually completing my graduate diploma in veterinary Chinese herbal medicine through the uh, College of Integrative Veterinary Medicine. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Um, it's taken me a while to get there. Um, I've studied Western herbal medicine at the Sydney College of Natural Therapies. Yeah. So I'm continually doing um, sort of online courses and I'm currently um studying um, integrative um, oncology um, in practice via biocidicals, which is a 12-month um, sort of study process. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've done some additional sort of study in integrative cancer care. So that's, I guess, more right. people cancer care, but, yeah. you know, a lot of it can be extrapolated to animal care. And, yep. and there's also been integrative cancer care course, veterinary medicine courses via the integrative college. So, and, and so I guess it's a combination of getting official qualifications and just continual self-learning and evolving yeah. um, and find, you know, through also using a lot of those strategies here, working out what seems to be effective, what maybe not, you know, is less effective. And but as I said, you know, learning new things every day. And so obviously cancer, it sounds like it is is a main interest for you? Look, it, it, it is, which um, sounds a little bit sad, but, um, you know, I mean, cancer is actually a lot of different illnesses. You know, it, it ranges from, you know, really much more benign, like skin adenomas, through to much more serious, um, um, you know, aggressive lymphoma. So cancer is a number of illnesses. And, and I think that, um, you know, we, we do a lot of chronic health conditions here and, and cancer is really just another chronic health yes. condition that we see. Um, but um, I think I was reflecting yesterday when I looked at all the cases that I'd seen through the day and it was, <laughs> I think, 80% of them were cancer cases. Oh, right. So we do see a lot of them, yeah. Yeah, and is that because they're directed to you because you have um, an interest in it or is that generally the caseload that you see in the clinic as a whole? At the moment, I think it's a reflection of the caseload that we're seeing here mm. um, for, for many reasons. Mm. Um, you know, we do seem to have a higher proportion of older animals here. Yes. So they're more likely to be developing cancer, but we also get patients coming here off their own bat or being referred here after a diagnosis. So so that may be part of that. Yeah, yeah right. Okay. And what is your approach? Um, can you walk us through sort of the moment when a patient walks in the door to see you, whether that's a first opinion um, consult or a referral? Can you walk us through what your approach is to to diagnostics um, and creating a treatment plan for them and then, you know, future monitoring and how you integrate conventional medicine and more traditional therapies and, and natural therapies? Yeah, so, so that's actually a really good point that we practice integrative veterinary medicine here. Mm. So um, we do offer a full range of, you know, we do conventional consultations. We Yes, we do vaccinate. We do have, um, you know, some... A lot, of quite a you know a range of prescription medicines here. We do routine blood tests and you know X-rays and ultrasounds and diagnostic tests and surgeries here. So we 
we do definitely make sure that our animals have the appropriate conventional medicine. Um, and so when we're, I guess, looking at a case like cancer, um, um, I guess um, one of the things perhaps to consider before we talk about exactly what we do is what our goals might be, mm. um, you know, the sorts of different things that we're not going to try and achieve all of these for every patient, but these are the sorts of things that we can try to do. So we... Um, for instance, we might be looking at strategies to reduce side effects from other treatments like chemotherapy, yeah. radiation, um, molecular treatments or surgery. We'd be looking at strategies to maintain quality of life, um, ensuring there's adequate analgesia, mm-hmm. appetite's good, weight management, etc. Um, we're definitely wanting to treat our patients as a whole. So one, a really important um point is that our cancer patients, our older patients, almost always have other health issues. Um, A lot of them have got mobility issues that need to be addressed, Um, cardiac issues. They might have pre-existing kidney or liver problems. Cushing's disease is a common one, cardiac disease. So it's really important that we don't just treat them as cancer on legs, but actually look at all the things that are affecting their quality of life. Um, And we also need to look at strategies to support organs and aspects of their health that have been affected by the disease itself Mm. as well as affected by the treatment for disease strategies to help them recover Mm -hmm. after surgery or after treatments Um, we aim to empower our pet owners as much as possible and provide them with options and choice um, based on the best information available and and, an important point I guess is that you know if I diagnose a cancer in a patient myself or I suspect that it's very likely, I will recommend a referral to an oncologist because I want them to be honest to know what are the options available so we can make yeah, the course. best decision together about how to go to go ahead. Um, we look at support to improve the outcome, so whether it's reducing side effects or even just improving the actual anti-cancer response to the treatment and, you know, strategies to prolong remission Mm -hmm. um, and prevent recurrence. There's a lot of things that we're thinking about. But I guess if we, you know, the patient's just walking through the door, um, and the first thing we've done is we've actually spent a lot of time reading the history. Um, Some of these patients come to us, I think the record, you know, might be like 172 pages. I've got a very large amount of information. Wow. um, Which... Because we're interested in the cancer and what's just been diagnosed, but we're also interested in what's been happening, what are yes. the other health issues that have been going on that A, might have driven the cancer or B, just might be things we need to address. Yeah. Um, and we also want to find out, you know, what they're eating. Um, you know, I'm always asking my patients, um, owners, what their poos are like. They're probably getting yep. tired of me. Um, but these oh, are all gut health affect. is so crucial to everything. Though. So important. Yeah. And these are all going to affect our treatment sort of choices and decisions. Um, and we do carry out, you know, a full conventional exam, but we include in that, you know, our holistic TCM, that's our traditional Chinese medicine mm-hmm. exam. So we're, we're looking at tongue and pulse and palpating for areas of pain or heat. And, and I guess that just gives us additional information that can help us work out the best approach, diet, herbs, um, using that sort of additional TCM um, information. And I'm, I'm probably not going to go into that too much now because that's a massive topic in itself. But that's, that's just a, a strategy that we um, use. Now, a very important part of our initial holistic exam for cancer patients is to discuss the goal of treatment with the owner. Um, it's really important that we manage their expectations. Um, these are often owners who are upset, they're stressed, yeah. Perhaps, you know, they're in shock or denial. 
um, they've often come to us, you know, with folders of information because they've done all their research yes. and they've found another dog that, you know, had, you know, you know survived or was cured using yeah. this particular herb. So, um, you know, it's really important that we, you know, really manage their expectations, um, you know, have some idea of the things that they might be asking us questions about, but also maybe guide them towards a, a more sort of logical plan, you know, that looks at diet and relevant supplements and herbs and, and just really explaining that what we can and what we can't do, you know, the yeah. goals that I discussed before. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's really important um, for everyone to understand that we never promise that we're going to cure a patient. We talk about um, improving their quality of life. We talk about, you know, hopefully improving their survival. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we definitely try to, you know, be very rational about that um, and, and what we can actually do to help them. So that's really important. And yeah, I guess also, I just as an aside from that, because some of the treatments that we're talking about are not really mainstream, um, you know, we need to talk about risks and um, I, I call it risks and benefit. I don't like saying the word risk, but we need to talk about, you know, what, what potential good, what side effects and, treatment yeah. and, and get some sort of informed consent, um, you know, because we may be discussing treatments that um, they haven't heard of before or their vets haven't heard of. So we can yeah. just make sure that they understand that some of the things we're talking about might not be things that other vets understand um, or use. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, the first few things that we do and then we start to talk about what are the actual strategies that we might implement for our for our patients, for our dogs and our cats that are coming in to see us. So the first thing that I usually look at is diet. Mm-hmm. Um you know, nutrition is the building block of health, I guess. Absolutely. Um, it's something that I really firmly believe. Yes. And um, I guess particularly for cancer patients, diet might be um, a very important thing to address. Um, so, you know, we, we look at you know, whether we can change to a cleaner diet with reduced pesticides, hormones, processing, carbohydrates, but one that's suited to our patient mm-hmm. and attainable by the owner. Yeah, achievable. Um, yeah. And we may need to, you know, consider special diets if we've got any pre existing, you know, organ dysfunction yes. like, you know, advanced kidney disease. Um, there's, I guess, many reasons why we address the diet. Um, so I'll talk about the whys and then the hows. So the yep. whys, um, you know, it's actually quite mainstream. I think nutrition for cancer patients is discussed quite readily now in, in regular veterinary practice. Yep. Um, um, Ogilvy did that work back in 2006 where he um, showed that dogs with a variety of cancers had increased insulin and lactate levels. And he showed the benefit of feeding dogs with advanced lymphoma, lymphoma sorry, that were undergoing chemotherapy, lower carbohydrate diets that were supplemented with essential fatty acids and L-arginine. So, um, and in fact, I think that works the basis for the prescription diet in D. Um, yes. And so that's, you know, a, quite a conventional approach is to have a look at nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important because we know that um, dogs that, have cancer and dogs that are undergoing treatment for cancer tend to lose weight. Yeah. Um, they've often got poor appetites. Their taste may change mm-hmm. if they're undergoing treatment. Um, cancer cachexia can occur, which is profound weight loss due to reduced food intake, due to illness, due to treatment, and due to the effect of the cancer itself and, and how it changes the metabolism of yeah. energy. 
Um, and so I, I guess a simple um, explanation, although I know it's much more complex than this, is that cancer cells are fueled by simple sugars. So simply yeah. reducing carbohydrates, reducing the em- energy substrates for the cancer cells sort of um, might make it harder for those cells to reproduce so rapidly because they perhaps initially can't utilize protein and fat so readily, although eventually I think they do learn to use proteins and fats. Um, so, so there's, you know, certainly lots of research to support change in diet. Um, and um, I, I guess what, what we try and do is move away from processed dry foods if we can. Yeah, that was going to be my question. You're going more to a home-cooked more to a home prepared diet, um, and um, you know, and you know, we've we've got some, um, I guess, some sort of basic strategies for a lower carbohydrate diet. So we might look at like the rough proportions that um, I might advise to people. This is volume wise, would be maybe fifty to even seventy five percent of a good quality protein. Um, some organ meat is is good, yep. particularly liver because it's high in vitamin A. Um, a wide variety of Colored vegetables full of phytonutrients and mm-hmm. flavonoids, but talking about strategies to actually get dogs and, and cats. And of course, cats aren't going to eat so many vegetables. Mm. So, you know, we, we, we usually talk about just a little tiny bit of, of, of spinach and a tiny bit of sweet potato or pumpkin for cats. But for dogs, you know, we try and get them maybe even up to 50% of vegetables, which might be cooked and chopped, you know, so lightly cooked and chopped. Or mm-hmm. um, I'll sometimes use the pulp from, I've got a juicer. Yeah, so if it's fresh, the pulp still got plenty of nutrients and antioxidants in there. And I, I'll often add a tiny little bit of a low GI carbohydrate like pumpkin to ensure that yes. they've got good bowel motion. Yeah. Um, and supplementing the calories with some fish oil and maybe some L-arginine, which um, enhances immune function mm-hmm. and, and may inhibit the growth of some tumours. Um, cooked or raw, um, important question. Um, my approach if I know my patients undergoing treatment like chemotherapy is to stick to cooked yeah, um, rather side. than raw. Um, but um, you know, it, it's a discussion that we have on a case by case basis, I suppose. Yeah. Um, no discussion of cancer diets complete without talking now about the ketogenic diet, which yeah. um, in people has been shown to be useful, particularly in patients um, if, if they've got insulin resistance, high blood glucose levels yeah, um, in certain types of cancers like lymphoma. Um, it's um, basically talks again about shifting the body's metabolism um, to using fat as yep. opposed to using sugar as an energy substrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do this, we need to get the, the dogs, and I don't think we do this with cats, into a state of ketosis. Now, I guess I have to say that I haven't got a lot of experience with this diet. Um, and um, But, you know, I, I do understand there are times when it might be useful. Mm. It's a very extreme diet. It requires mm. really strict calorie restriction, um, feeding a raw, high-fat, low-carbohydrate and moderate-protein diet. Yeah. And it also requires a lot of monitoring, um, which yes. can be done at home. I believe that there are keto the monitors keto that can yeah. be purchased. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I, I don't think it is suitable for every patient. Um, it leads to weight loss. It can certainly lead to diarrhea. Um, it certainly can help to reduce insulin resistance and reduce high glucose levels. And we know, again, that insulin resistance and high blood glucose can drive some types of cancer. But um, I, I suppose um, my thoughts are if I had an overweight 
dog that I knew potentially had a lot of insulin resistance or we had blood tests to support that, then we'd certainly consider it. Um, But if I've got a dog that's underweight, that has a long history of gut issues or pancreatitis, um, it's probably not a diet strategy that I'm going to use. And, And another thing that I feel is super important is that my patients want to eat their food. I feel like I really want them to like their food. I feel, I find that most dogs and cats love homemade diets. That's my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I want them to love their food. Um, And and that's something that we might address later when we talk about herbs and supplements because the number of things that we're trying to mix in food might have to be limited if we feel that we're affecting their quality of life through making the taste of the food taste bad. Um, But just coming back to a ketogenic diet, I think it's something that um, I, I I will consider, but I don't think it's appropriate for every patient. Um, and um, I think diet is, it, like everything, we have to consider our patient. And we have to consider our patients' owners, our clients. You know, yes. some of them are busy. They've got four small children. Um, I can't expect them to spend an hour, you know, a couple of, you know, a few times a week preparing food for their dog if it's hard for them to prepare enough food for their yeah. kids. So we've got to really be realistic about what's yeah. achievable. Yeah. Um, so we always just aim for the best we can. Um, you know, like you know, coming back to the clean diet, of course, organic food. Yes, I was going to ask food. that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's ideal, but it, it's, it's expensive. It's expensive. Um, you know, I know I can't afford that. Not for my family and myself all the mm. time. I might, you know, get one organic or two organic things a week. So, so it's about what's achievable. It's about you know aiming as high as we can, but but not, you know, I I don't want my clients to feel guilty. No, if they can't do that, I think yeah. it's you know we've got to manage stress, and and I think it's really important that we just do the best that we can. And um, the reality is, I think that just getting them off processed foods and onto home prepared food makes such a makes big such difference a difference to their health. Yeah. And so many of our clients just tell me, you know, as we sort of make this diet change, oh, wow, they've got so much energy and they're acting like puppies and I'm thinking, oh, it's the diet. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, um, you know, and obviously we'd love to have them on those diets right from, you know, at a much earlier time. But, um, but um, yeah, diet, very, very important and definitely something that we, we have to spend a lot of time talking about. But I guess I'll move on to supplements because yeah. um, that's certainly equally important. Um, so, um, I guess, you know, I think to quote, um, I think it might be Boyd who actually said that there are many natural compounds who have meant that had many effects that benefit cancer patients. So we know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, I guess with regards to, to supplements, um, I guess they're functional foods. There are things that we add that we feel are going to have a health benefit to our patients. And there's a lot of those that we might use for cancer patients. And, um, I'm just going to run through yeah, a few. Yeah, great. Um, I'm going to start with fish oil, which we've already mentioned um, as a source of omega-3 essential fatty acids, um, which we use to supply fats and calories to prevent weight loss and cancer cachexia, but also um, essential fatty acids have other health benefits that, you know, are advantageous, um, have an anti-inflammatory benefit, um, and also may have a specific anti-cancer benefit and improves the outcomes of patients undergoing other types of cancer treatment. Um, we're also always cautious with fish oil if we know surgery is going yeah. to be scheduled. Um, I so always stop fish oil at least a week yeah. um, before um, any sort of surgical procedure. We actually aim to use quite high doses of fish oil in our cancer patients if we can. Okay. Um, I, I tend to introduce it slowly to make sure we don't get any, you know, I don't want to cause any diarrhea, diarrhea but, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I use, you know, 30 to 50 mg 
per kicks per day of DHA, which can end up being quite a lot of mm. oil. And and so we do sometimes look for products that are, you know, the console, concentrated or triple strength products just so that we're not giving nine capsules yeah. of fish oil a day. Yeah. Um and, and that's a dose that, you know, seems to benefit a lot of patients, particularly with really inflammatory cancers like lymphoma. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we have to go slow. Some dogs um won't tolerate that. I probably don't go quite that high with cats. Um, but we just, I just go slow and, and monitor and just get up to the highest dose that seems to be tolerated. Um, probiotics, I, um, you know, we beneficial bacteria that we use to replenish the microbiome, which is damaged from stress, yep. from surgery, from medications, from illness, from poor diet, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, any time I change a diet in any of my patients, I'll almost certainly add some probiotics in, but I think they're particularly important for cancer patients, and that's just something that we keep going keep going ongoing using yep. a product that has a high concentration of large number of beneficial bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I guess I need to talk about antioxidants and um, antioxidants are something that we use a lot of, but we have to discuss, I guess, the pros and cons of using them in cancer patients. Yeah. Um, you know, what are antioxidants? They are compounds that inhibit oxidation. Oxidation is a chemical reaction which can produce free radicals, and reactions that may damage the cells of organisms. So, um, antioxidants are good because they, you know, promote the health of cells, but are they bad because are they going to interfere with the treatment for cancer? Yeah, and, particularly and chemotherapy. Particularly chemotherapy. Yeah. Um, and, and look, that is, that is the question I have spent hours looking into this. <laughs> I've asked so many people, yeah. oncologists, um, integrative practitioners, integrative veterinary practitioners, you know, it, it's, it, I don't think anyone knows the answer. So what are the benefits of antioxidants for, for cancer treatment? Well, they protect the other cells. And so when I say for cancer treatment, I guess we're talking about patients now that are undergoing specific chemotherapy. So they mm-hmm. protect the other cells from damage. They may also increase apoptosis in cancer cells they okay. may um, reverse chemotherapy drug resistance in cancer cells um, and, and there's probably numerous other benefits um, to the health and well-being of the patient that I haven't listed here, but there's certainly a lot of benefits. The issue is that many chemotherapy agents have antioxidant effects, oh, sorry, have oxidative effects, I yes. should say, um, and we don't probably fully understand the role of these oxidative effects in the cancer-killing effect of the chemotherapy. So what I really mean by that is the chemotherapy agents probably do more than just damage the cells using oxidative damage. Um, but we, you know, I guess we just don't understand fully what they do. Mm. Um, and they're, they're not really enough well-designed clinical trials to be able to make have a clear answer. And that's because, you know, we're talking about a biological system. We're talking about an animal. We're talking about compounds like antioxidants that have numerous effects. And we're talking about chemotherapy that probably also has numerous effects. Yeah. So um, what are the specific concerns? Well, there, there may be more concerns combining antioxidants with alkylating agents like cyclophosphamide or chlorambucil. Yeah. The doxyribicin is an interesting one. Now, doxyribicin is, is used in the um, in the CHOP protocol for lymphoma. Um, it has oxidation as its role in tumour control, 
but the oxidative damage may also be responsible for cardiotoxicity and cardiotoxicity can be the limiting factor in being able to use doxyrubicin as part of a cancer protocol. Right. So we want to limit that cardiotoxicity. Yeah. Um, so in other words, you know, we, we, we want to control the tumour with the chemotherapy, but we may need to protect our patient from the damage caused by the chemotherapy in order to be able to continue the chemotherapy. So I yeah. guess you can go around in circles. But, yeah. you know, I guess my approach here is to use coenzyme Q10 mm-hmm. to limit the damage to the heart muscle um, to allow my patient to continue their chemotherapy. So I guess that sort of summarises the, 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 the sort of controversy. So I think um, in conclusion to just a discussion on that, there was a large review in 2007 um, that looked at, like a, a meta-review that looked at um, quite a number of studies. I probably have a number of studies written down somewhere, but I can't. I haven't got it here with me now. Um, and, and their overall summary was that non-prescription antioxidants did not interfere with cancer therapies and may enhance the anti-cancer effect and reduce side effects and protect the normal tissue. Okay. Um, the experience of most vets working in integrative practice, doing you know practicing integrative oncology, um, and, and there actually is a specialist oncologist amongst these vets, is that we don't see a reduced response to treatment or reduced survival in dogs or cats receiving antioxidants as part of an integrative approach to cancer care. However, I do always respect the opinion of the treating oncologist. I'll let them know what we're doing. And if they prefer that we keep antioxidants away from the treatment, then I will. Um, So overall, I guess there's most probably more benefit than risk using antioxidants um, and it will improve our patient's ability to tolerate the chemotherapy and there's no overall, you know, harm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we just have that um, concern that, um, you know, the, the oncologists might be worried. I actually have something I call the 2848 hour rule. So if I, if I am using um, a supplement that's primarily an antioxidant, I'll stop it 24 hours before and resume. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. Yeah, yeah. So it interacts um, less. It can get confusing for people. So you, you know, that that's something to be aware. You know, aware of that. You know, that there's a lot happening. Um, it can be really confusing if you say, "Oh, you can take this one every day," but this one you stop 24 hours before and start 48 hours after. So you yeah. know, you, sometimes I just stop everything 24 hours before 48 just right. to make it simple. Yeah. Um, because we've got to make it easy for people as well. So I guess there's just one more thing, um, radiation. Um, yes. You know, there, there, there is a special concern using antioxidants in patients that are undergoing radiation therapy. I think this is based on a study in smokers okay. in cancer using vitamin E. Um, I can't remember the year, but it might be some years ago, where they found that the patients who were using vitamin E in conjunction with radiation treatment, um, they had fewer side effects, but unfortunately had higher mortality. Um, And I've I've probably got the details of that study somewhere. The the, the issue there, of course, is that these are people and these were smokers, and and who knows what effect that had on the whole outcome of the... um, the study, and, and we don't have too many smokers amongst our patients. No. But, you know, I think based on that, um, radiation oncologists certainly in human medicine don't like antioxidants being right. used during treatment. And I respect that. And I yep. think there are other things we can use to support patients undergoing radiation. Um, so I won't use um, any sort of, um, particularly vitamin E, but I, I won't use strong antioxidant supplements if, if I know a patient's undergoing radiation. So I guess that's probably where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you ask me the question in 12 
time, I might give you a different answer. But that's the that's the beauty, isn't it? Yeah. And everything changes so quickly in in, it does. in the literature. Yeah. And, so so yeah. I guess at the moment I'm thinking probably more benefits, but I'm still cautious and yeah. I won't use it for radiotherapy. So, um, you know, the antioxidants, I guess, quick summary, you know, vitamin A has cytotoxic effects and, and may induce differentiation and apoptosis. And so we do sometimes use quite high doses of vitamin A in yep. our patients. Um, we are aware, we know that over a long period of time, very high doses may be toxic, toxic yeah. uh, but we haven't had the experience that that's been the case. Are you monitoring the vitamin A in the blood or is it um, purely just No, on? it's not something we can do readily um, at this point in time, we're probably more likely to be monitoring liver function uh, or liver, not liver function, but liver health. But liver is more likely to be damaged by more conventional treatments than it is to be damaged by the vitamin A. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we're aware of this and and I guess, um, you know, we do, we'll tend to start with high doses, but we'll tend to pull them back over time. Um, Vitamin D, uh, I suppose, this is a newer antioxidant vitamin that we're looking at now for, you know, care of our cancer patients. And in in fact, um, vitamin D may inhibit tumour growth, angiogenesis and metastasis and in fact um, has been shown to induce differentiation in canine osteosarcoma cells, so particularly for our osteosarcoma patients. But prolonged high doses can be toxic. Now for vitamin D, it's actually now relatively easy to run a test um, and so we do try to assess vitamin D levels early on Mm -hmm. in our cancer patients and then supplement and check. Yeah. Um, two to three months later to see that we're on the right track. And we know that low vitamin D levels um, seem to be present in a lot of our canine patients with cancer. So it, it may well be an important thing yeah. to be addressing as part yeah. of their treatment. Um, I'll also just quickly touch on vitamin C. Um, we do offer intravenous vitamin C as part of the yeah. cancer support for our patients here. Um there's you know, a lot of studies in people certainly showing the benefits of intravenous vitamin C during chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, one example, in breast cancer patients, reduced nausea, you know, reduced appetite loss, reduced fatigue, reduced insomnia um, wow. and improvements in treat- out- treatment outcomes um, when intravenous vitamin C was given weekly but not on the day of treatment. Now, um, we probably don't have, you know, th- there's lots of studies in people. We don't necessarily have um, as many studies in no. It's very frustrating. Um, um, which is very frustrating. Yeah. Um, but um, we certainly do do uh, use intravenous vitamin C and um, I guess our experience is that we feel that our patients seem to be brighter, they have more energy, they maintain their weight and they seem to have improved quality of life. We probably don't have enough cases to really be able to assess the, the outcomes. Yeah. Um, the negatives, certainly for our patients, the cost the yeah. time, the stress of yet another vet visit, yeah. you know, and the need to be, you know, on a cath. It's a two-hour visit to get an intravenous vitamin C treatment. Also, our need to preserve veins if we've got patients yes. undergoing chemotherapy. They yeah. don't have central lines, um, you know, installed like people do. So yeah. we need to be careful that we're not basically stuffing up yeah. the veins for our oncologists. Um, you know, we're very mindful of that and we, we use alternative veins and we're very careful to flush afterwards to avoid any phlebitis and we keep the treatment well away from the chemotherapy, not so much to not interfere with it, but just to kind of, you know, keep it easier for the for the patients. But but um, so overall we like to use it. We do find there's a benefit, but we're, you know, very aware that the, the cost and the time and the stress yeah. are negative. And I've certainly had patients in the past where I said, no, look, he's just not 
going to cope with an intravenous catheter every two weeks. I'm sorry. It's going to create too much stress. This is not going to benefit him. Um, So it's really about, you know, picking the patient, picking the treatment. Um, Melatonin is another supplement, I suppose I should add, just briefly, that um, we're starting to use more often. Um, Certainly in people, um, it's an endogenous hormone that's used, I guess, primarily to adjust sleep-wake cycles in shift workers Mm -hmm. and for jet lag and insomnia, but, you know, has been shown to prevent some of the side effects of radiation and chemotherapy um, in people, including dry mouth, um, peripheral neuropathy, fatigue, and it may also improve the treatment outcomes. Um, so melatonin is not readily available in Australia. No, I was going to ask that. Time. I haven't been able to yeah. find it. No, well, you can get – there is a depot form that you can purchase from the chemist, but I actually prefer – we can get it compounded. Okay. So, yeah, so we can just get a prescription and get it compounded. And so, you know, that that's sort of the way that, that we've used it. And I, I feel that it's benefiting my patients. Again, I don't have um, a large – case study loads to really demonstrate this, but we're certainly using and finding that it seems to be helpful. Um, Just one other thing before we leave supplements, Um, just for radiation support, L-glutamine can be given orally to to reduce mucositis, and we do see mucositis in our patients that have had particularly sort of nasal um, radiation therapy or... Um, oral radiation therapy. So so that's something that we can consider as a supplement for our patients as well or, or green tea, but that's moving on to herbs, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so um, so you know, there's, there's a lot more Lots, supplements. Yeah. I haven't really got into all of them and, and it, it's easy to be overwhelmed and I think that um, we always try to pick a couple that we think are going to be really useful for this patient and see how they cope and then maybe add a couple more in. Yep. Uh, so, again, it comes down to a very individualised approach to to our patients and to our clients rather than saying, here's your list, just off a you blanket, go. yeah. Um, because, you know, we, we just want to, again, reduce stress and costs as well yeah. um, for our clients. So yeah. I guess herbs is, I guess it's a little bit like moving up the ladder here. So, you know, we're sort of staying close to nutrition, but now we're coming to our, our, our herbal support. Um and, um, I mean, we use herbs for lots of reasons. Um, we use herbs for their anti-cancer effects. We use herbs to reduce the side effects of treatments, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation. We use herbs to support organ systems, herbs to reduce pain. So we use herbs for lots of reasons. And I think what I'm just going to try and do is give a few examples of some of the herbs or yeah. herbal formulae that we use and why we use them. That would be great. Um, so um, Jung and Bayo, um is... Perhaps um, it's an important formula for us in the management of a particular tumour, splenic hemangiosarcoma, um, and you know may even improve the survival time in those patients because it can help to minimise the the bleeding yes. hemorrhage. So these are tumours that tend to bleed. Um, it may actually have um, an anti-cancer effect as well. So human bio is a, a herb that we use a lot certainly for abdominal tumours, particularly if we think there's a potential for them to bleed. But I'll also use it pre- and post-operatively to minimise bleeding. Um, And you can use it topically as well. So if I've got a patient that's got a skin tumour that tends to ulcerate or bleed, we can actually use it on those tumours as well to help with clotting and to help stop the bleeding because I just find that bleeding quite distressing. Um, So Unibio is is definitely one that um, that, that we will use. Um, I think the main ingredient is Panax Notoginseng Sanchi. Um, my opinion's not very good, so excuse my pronunciation. No, but, that sounds um, great. 
Um, and, and it contains ingredients that have been shown to have anti-tumor activity. Um, and, and actually, it's a funny little herb because it comes in a little pot or, or it comes in capsules, but the little pot's quite funny because it's got instructions. And, and one of the instructions, because there's a little red ball bearing in the pot, is that um, you, you take the ball bearing after you've been shot. So I think oh. that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, I, I haven't actually dosed any of my patients with the ball bearing yet. Um, none of them, to my knowledge, have been shot. But um, I just think that's kind of funny coming wow. from the traditional Chinese medicine that yeah. they have this little ball in there that you take after you've been shot. <laughs> Um, medicinal mushrooms, um, really, mm. we, we, we have to talk about using those. And, and again, they're becoming probably more widely used in mainstream veterinary practice. Um, so combinations of medicinal mushrooms, you know, which have been used for their um, immune modulating activity and there's um, mushroom, different mushrooms have, you know, different effects that are of benefit for patients with cancer. Mm -hmm. um, the particular mushroom that um, we're interested in uh, as veterinarians at the moment is the Coriolis versicola or the turkey tail mushroom. Mm -hmm. um, there was a study done at the Pennsylvania State University a few years ago now um, where they showed improved survival time in dogs diagnosed with hemangiosarcoma, so the splenic hemangiosarcoma again. Um, so they had improved survival taking the Coriolis mushroom after splenectomy versus just splenectomy alone. So we, wow. we do splenectomy to stop the potential for hemorrhage. Yeah. Um, so, but they showed improved survival if they um, took the Coriolis mushroom after the surgery versus no treatment. And this is a cancer that chemotherapy doesn't have a lot to offer for. So, yes. um, you know, having that alternative treatment is fantastic. Yeah. Um, the, the dose that they used was um, 100 mg per kg per day. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a reasonably high dose, but um, it's, you know, it's certainly treatment that's obtainable and doable, um, and that's definitely something that we look at. Um, there are other cancers. I think uh, Coriolis has been shown to be a benefit for lymphoma as well. So there are other cancers that will use that one for, um, but that's, you know, particularly exciting to actually yeah. have the, the backup of that um, trial yeah. that shows the benefit of a treatment that, you know, we've it has benefit for some time. Um, there's a Chinese herbal formula called Sao Chai Hu Tang, um, which is a classical traditional Chinese herbal formula that contains a number of herbs um, used for um, Xiao Yang syndrome in Chinese medicine, kind of a harmonizing or a balancing formula. Um, and I guess that means it's kind of got a combination of anti-inflammatory and, you know, tonifying effects. Mm -hmm. um, but it's... Um, got a number of herbs that have immune modulating and anti-tumor effects. I think in particular, Bluplerum, um, minor Bluplerum is the English name, um, contains berberine, which is a, yes. a, a compound that we know has a number of anti-cancer effects. Um, and, and so I guess this is a Chinese herbal formula that is very widely used, I think, in China for cancer support and certainly one that um, we use um, particularly for maybe some liver tumours, um, lymphoma might be another one that we use it for. So it's certainly one that we consider. Um, and, and I guess when we're looking at Chinese herbs, we do come back and look at our Chinese um, medical exam and just try to see if we think this herb matches this patient. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess a simple way to explain that is that if we have a very hot inflamed patient, we may not want to use a tonifying herb. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if we have a really cold, depleted, weak 
tired patient, we may not want to use a really strong anti-inflammatory herb. Um, and, and I suppose to take that analogy a little further, we do find patients on chemotherapy over time become more depleted. So we're, we're less likely to be using strong anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory herbs in those patients and more likely to be just using tonifying strategies to yeah. keep them going. Yeah. Um, Dusong Yuqi Tang, another Chinese herb, but I'll just mention one more herbal formula, Dusong Yuqi Tang. The English name is Astragalus and ginseng. Yes. So it contains already two herbs that we know have a number of anti-cancer effects, but there is a study that shows um, that dogs that received chemotherapy for lymphoma and aversion and also Buzong Yichi Tang showed less gastrointestinal side effects and less um, white cell suppression. So, um, you know, there again, we have a little bit of science to back up using that particular Chinese herbal formula in some of our patients. Cucumin, which mm-hmm. is the yellow pigment of the turmeric yep. uh, root. Um, Good for everything. <laughs> It's good for everything, um, and and you know we, we use it already for our patients with arthritis. So we use yes. it, you know, for a number of, and, and so you know, there we go. We've got older patients; they're almost certainly got some um, joint problems and pain problems. They may not be able to take a non-steroidal or a conventional pain relief medication at this point in time. So here's something we can use that's actually going to be of benefit to them. Got a number of um, anti-cancer effects. It's certainly been shown to enhance the sort of cancer killing effects in conjunction with chemotherapy and radiation um, there's a whole bunch of things it does it um, inhibits angiogenesis um, so I've got a list here and um, but I think the main thing is that it's definitely something we consider for a lot of our patients now yeah. one of the issues with cucumin is um, it's not well absorbed yes um, in people or in dogs um, and I'm probably talking more about dogs and cats here, and, and, and cats might be a special case because we we do find we can only really add a few herbs and supplements into the protocol for our cats. Yeah. So most of the things I'm talking about today are for dogs, dogs. but curcumin in particular is, you know, in the powdered form is poorly absorbed. Um, so there's a couple of ways we can get around that. There are some professional products that are made more bioavailable, so mm-hmm. we'll look at using those. Um, there's a recipe for something called golden paste, which combines the you know, a good quality fresh spice powder with some coconut oil um, and a little pepper, although I tend not to use too much pepper in my patients, but um, and that's supposed to improve the absorption. So that's something nice that people yeah. can do if they if they want to just do something themselves. Yeah. But we definitely look at using curcumin um, as as part of our sort of anti cancer strategy. We we even sometimes add some to a Chinese herbal formula just right. to sort of increase the, the sort of I suppose the anti cancer sort of um, feel of the formula. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only other things, I, I guess there's, there's a few more. Bilberry um, is a herb that's um, been shown to target osteosar- osteosarcoma cells in human cell lines, so I might add that to a dog with osteosarcoma. Yeah. Chorodialis is a really important herb that we use for its analgesic effect yeah. um, to help give us more pain control. Um, boswellic acid, so in particular boswellia, yes. um, shown to be useful in melanomas, in gliomas in people, mechanic cell lines in people. But an interesting effect that I actually just um, learned about as I was signing up for this is that um, it can help reduce swelling from brain tumours and, and that's right. something that we have a real problem with in our canine patients with um, meningiomas. So, so that's something that we might consider adding in that situation and, and also very useful for arthritis. So again, yes. you know, we've got the boss 
really have got um, to human that we can use not only to address cancer but to help our you know other health conditions that are in our patients. Green tea, um, I love green tea, but I'll, I'll only use it in the tea form. I won't use the concentrated extracts in, in dogs. I, mm-hmm. I know there were some toxicity reports in people, I think liver damage. Um, and um, I know there were, I guess this was a particular um, isolate of the green tea, but I guess I just use tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get my clients to just make up a cup of tea um, and mix it in with food, you know, as much as the, the dogs will tolerate. If, they, if we're worried yeah. about caffeine, um, apparently if we um, put the Just Boils water into one cup with one good quality organic green tea bag and discard after two minutes and yes. then refill with Just Boils water, then we're getting rid of some of the caffeine, a lot of the caffeine, So, but still keeping a lot of the, oh, okay. the That's good polyphenols. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so I, we use a lot of green tea. And we can use green tea topically too as a mouthwash, uh, particularly um, if we're getting mucositis from radiation treatment mm-hmm. or if we've got intraoral tumours, which unfortunately we do deal with, yeah. um, or topically for, for skin tumours if they're ulcerating. So there's lots of ways we can use green tea. Um, so there's that's a number of herbs, and there's, there's a lot more, but I guess they're the ones that I, the I main probably ones. reach for a lot. Yeah. Um, we do use acupuncture for cancer care. Um, I, I'll just talk about it briefly. Um, acupuncture we use primarily to improve appetite, improve energy, reduce pain. Um, there, there, I think, is a little bit of a debate about whether needling or acupuncture through its circulatory sort of benefits may, in theory, spread cancer. Mm. It, it probably doesn't, but most trained acupuncturists won't stick needles near tumours. So I guess we, we tend to use needles on, on points that are more for nausea or you know points around sore hips and, yeah. and actually close to cancer. So yeah. we definitely do use acupuncture for cancer care. Um, and, um, you know, we might use other physical treatments where appropriate, like, you know, massage, but again, not necessarily near a tumor. Um, we, we, as as part of our integrative approach, we, we definitely discuss specifically pain management. Um, so as well as looking at, um, Corridalis, which I've mentioned before, looking at acupuncture, We'll all discuss CBD. Now, I won't go into that too much. Yeah, um, that's probably another whole episode, isn't it? <laughs> it is. That's correct. It's, we, we certainly have, can't dispense that here, but you yes. know, we have to discuss it because people ask the question yeah. and, and we, we can't just say, oh, we don't know anything about that. So we do have to discuss yep. the use of CBD. Um, and, and basically, I guess that it certainly may have some benefits. Um, it certainly can reduce pain. It may reduce specific symptoms like seizures, nausea, yeah. um, nausea, stress. But on the other hand, unfortunately, we just don't have products with, you know, standardization. Yeah. We, we don't have doses. We don't really know fully how it may interact with other medications mm. or treatments that are on board. The literature's just um, not there, is it, at the no, moment? No, it's not there yet. So overall, there's probably benefits and we, we have to discuss it with owners because it's better that we discuss it with them and tell them what we know than to let them just go off to Dr. Google and make their own choices and their own decisions. And we do definitely impress upon our clients that they must tell other treating vets about any treatment that we've prescribed and anything they're taking off their own bat as well because it definitely can be important in in what might need to be done with patients in in other veterinary practices. So so we we want to be open about all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. um, I've talked before about you know support for other health exist, uh, issues that exist. Dental disease is a big one, um, mm. you know, and we definitely try to make sure we've got strategies to maintain clean, healthy teeth, particularly throughout chemotherapy. 
um, when we're not going to be talking about having dental procedures done yeah. and we can't have raw bones, so we definitely can't neglect that area of, of healthcare because the last thing we want is patients who are coming out the other end of cancer support, going, okay, we're in remission, but, oh, gosh, we've got you know terrible dental disease yeah. and now we've got to consider an anaesthetic and that's going to stress the system. Yeah. Is that the wrong thing to do? Because you know, I guess what we know when we've got patients in remission is the cancer hasn't gone away, it's just that we can't see it anymore yeah. um, and we don't want to be adding in potentially anything that might make it come back. Um, We talk about preventative healthcare, um, avoiding vaccines if possible and considering, well, actually I must admit I probably wouldn't tie the test if a patient was undergoing an active cancer treatment, but we definitely want to avoid vaccines and reduce um, as much as possible flea, tick, heartworm and intestinal worming products. And Mm -hmm. and that's got to be an individual case-by-case sort of recommendation. You know, if I have a patient living up in pit water, you know, up on the northern beaches where there's ticks everywhere and there's a very, very high risk of getting a paralysis tick, you know, paralysis tick's going to be a disaster for yeah. a dog that's got cancer and undergoing treatment. So we need to consider conventional tick prevention is much that, you know, we want, we don't really like using the chemicals. But, yeah. you know, if we're living in the inner city and we don't ever go out of the courtyard, then we probably don't need tick prevention and we may not even need tick prevention. So it's really about strategies to reduce the use of pesticides, chemicals, intestinal worming and heartworm prevention, but also making sure that to the best of our ability, our patients are protected. Yeah. Um, you know, one example is we might do, recommend a fecal flotation every six months instead of a, an all worm up. Yeah. So that, you know, just takes away one chemical. Yeah. Um, we might recommend, you know, monitoring closely for fleas and maybe using a repellent like Ning spray. But if our animals are really unhappy because they've got fleas, we're not going to say, oh, we can't use no, flea control. Yeah. We're going to use it if, you know, if it reduces stress. It's really stress. necessary, yeah. So it's really about, again, you know, making a decision that everyone's comfortable with in the individual situation. Um, if we do have to use a conventional product, we'll try and use the shortest acting single valent product, you know, so one that just does heart room or yeah. just does fleas rather than a cocktail that has a lot of things included. Yeah. And as an extension sense. of that, you know, reducing the chemical load in the environment, um, you know, we, we know the, the role of chemicals may play long-term in the development of cancer in our patients and obviously we'd like to reduce the chemical load very early on, but certainly in patients who are stressed and have cancer, you know, reducing their exposure to herbicides, pesticides, cigarette smoke, yep. fumes, cleaning products, pollution. yeah. That's right, yeah, antibacterial sort of spray and white yeah. products, um, plastics maybe, yep. um, heavy metals. So, you know, looking at all of that, you know, what we can do to reduce in the environment. Um, and I guess managing stress, um, exercise and lifestyle is so important. Like, yeah. you know, it, it probably should be way up at the top of the list. So I probably shouldn't have left it to, we are at number 11 now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that, we, for, you know, we want to maintain routine as much as possible. They need to continue to exercise. Even if they can't exercise to, to the full extent that they used to, we, we just need them Gentle going walks, out the door yeah. and, you know, or driving to the park. So they go, yeah, yeah, I've done this, I've done yeah. this today. Having it some really stimulation. helps to reduce stress. And, yeah. and, and I guess um, in addition to that, you know, there's so many, um, you know, sort of uh, – studies or reports that show the benefits in people of continuing exercise through 
cancer treatment. And, and even on the day of chemotherapy, the, the recommendation is that they might, you know, should have half an hour of a, re, you know, not necessarily high impact exercise, but pretty good exercise on the day of yeah, treatment. Yeah, I have read really that too. Yeah, to, to chemotherapy and, and make so, them feel so you know, much better. We can better. talk to our owners about, you know, when you get to the vet half an hour early and go for a nice big walk yeah. before you. Um, um, you know, go in to have the treatment. It will help to reduce stress yeah. or take off the excess energy and it might actually improve the outcome as well. And it's also important for musculoskeletal problems and other health issues that yeah. might exist. Maintain and it's the muscle for mass. owners, you know, it gives them that lovely quality time, yeah. that one-on-one time. Uh, helps to manage weight if, if weight is an issue, which it is in some of our patients. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and reducing stress, again, it might come down to, you know, reducing vet visits. Um, mm. It might come down to reducing the number of supplements and herbs that we're recommending, both for the owners and for the pets. Yeah. Um, we want them to want to eat their food. So, yeah. Um, and, and and also to see, like, we can't do everything here. We're not counsellors and we, we, we are limited on our time. But, you know, we want to sort of just ensure that our owners have got some resources for their own emotional support. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's just knowing that they've got their own sort of backup at home. Um, there are a couple of websites we might be able to sort of point them in the direction of, um, you know, just so that they don't feel like they're so alone. Um, you know, I don't like to use the word journey, but it's like a life, you know, one of those reality TV shows. But it is a bit of a, it is a, bit of a journey yeah. that they're undergoing and they often feel quite isolated. So, um, and unfortunately, we we love much as I'd love to sit and talk to them, you know, for half an hour at the end of the consultation. I usually can't. So, we just need to know that they've got that support. They know um, where to go, yeah. Exactly. So, um, and, and we'll, this is also where we'll look at, you know, massage techniques that they can do at home, like a little bit of gentle yeah. touch. Using Sarah's senses, um, you know, can be very useful for managing stress. And, and, and I guess one of the things I was going to say, I think way back at the beginning, but I forgot to mention it, is that we've set up our clinic here to try to be a low-stress environment. Mm. So we've got, you know, our consulting rooms. We don't have tables. We have mats on the floor. Even for our little ones, we're sitting on the floor. Yeah. We use the pheromones like a adaptable and fell away in the rooms to try and reduce stress. We also use a, a particular um, sort of flower essence spray or mist that I might spray on myself. And yep. um, not, I won't spray things on animals, but I'll spray it on myself or my hands if I'm going to do something that might be a little bit scary, like a, a blood collection. It, I'm not sure if it's to reduce my stress or reduce <laughs> the stress of my patient. But yeah, it, it probably a bit help. of both. Um, probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, we, we've got sort of lowered lighting. We don't have computers in our consulting rooms, so yep. we, we try and sit there and be actually communicating and be really present. Our, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have music out the back um, with our patients that are here out the back to try and reduce their stress levels out there. And so, sounds so like a lovely place. It, yeah, we try to make it a low stress place as much as we can for mm. for our our um, patients, our little yep. dogs and cats, and for our and for our pet carers as well. Yeah, we I guess we we can't sort of complete a discussion about innovative cancer care without talking about end of life care because you know it's also an yeah. important of the whole I guess the journey and and I guess the timing of that discussion. Um, you know, sometimes we might do it early on and, and sometimes we might leave it until a little later. But we do try to address it really before the time comes so yeah. that our, our owners, A, feel know prepared. their options and what yeah. it's going to be like. They feel prepared and if they want things done in a particular way that they've, yeah. they've made those decisions early on. Um, and, and also discussing when to make the decision. How do we go about deciding um, I think when I first graduated, we were told something like, oh, you'll know when it's time. But mm. I don't think I do now. I'm sure I know less about when it's time now than I used to. And, and I know that most of my 
pet carers don't. They yeah. certainly need our guidance. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, it's a decision we, we all need to make together. And it's a really hard decision to make. So, uh, and I know all vets know that. I know, I know most vets are really, really good at, at that sort of end of life care. But it, it is something that I guess you, you need to address probably sooner rather than later, just so that we've had that discussion. Yeah. There are some, some owners who say, no, no, I can't talk about that now. Okay. They're not ready. Right, you know, yeah. We're not ready. I, I, I actually try and ask permission. I say, do you mind if we discuss this today? Before I before I start talking about it, and if, if yeah. they're not ready, okay, we're not going to have that discussion today. Yeah. But there are also websites that, that can help be helpful in that um, area as well. Um, you know, communication is really important, and we we try to do you know a written plan so that owners have kind of a, a list of what they should be doing, and also something they can share with their vets. Yes. Um, and we need to monitor their progress. And, and I suppose, you know, from our perspective, the more often we see them, the better because then we can change things as we need to. Yeah. But that's not always possible. Um, yeah. we, we do some phone consultations. So, um, you know, there are some of our patients that live a long way away and they have a, their, their local vet or their specialist vet that's guiding their conventional care. And, and we'll do a phone consultation to try and sort of help with our sort of complementary support. Um, but we need to, you know, we definitely need to monitor where we're off to. It's not just a, a matter of here's the plan off you go. Um, things change with cancer patients. We know that, and we need to continually refine. I often find we're pulling back um, as time goes on mm-hmm. um, because fatigue. The owners get fatigued yeah. with everything. Dogs and cats get fatigued. They're sick of all the stuff in their food. So we're often pulling back as time goes on. But we we just need to keep monitoring and refining as we go. Yeah. So. When I wrote my list there and I thought I was <laughs> going to simplify an intensive approach to oh, no. veterinary practice and, and then I was thinking, wow, this is just not simple. I can't simplify no, this. It's it, really complicated. So much valuable um, information it's, it's quite that you hard, shared. I have to admit, and we, we yeah. definitely have to replenish ourselves. And I suppose that's probably the last point there is that yeah. if you're seeing a lot of these patients, you need to be Look after filling yourself. the jug up again yeah. one way or another by yeah. whatever is your preferred method of doing that because, um, you know, it really is very depleting um, physically, mentally and emotionally. (laughs) Yeah. So when I think my my partner says to me when I get home that there's no point talking to you, You, your brain's just like, you're done. Yep, that's it. You just (laughs) need some silence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point to end on. Absolutely, Karen. Wow. Well, it sounds like you're doing an absolutely beautiful job at All Natural Vet Care and we're lucky to have such an amazing resource here in Sydney. I wish that <laughs> I wish that every animal had the, the amount of devotion and care that, that you sound like that you offer. Um, it's just a, a lovely approach um, and hopefully something that will become more mainstream um, as, as the years go on. Look, I think it will. I definitely yeah. think it will. And, and and I think eventually antioxidants are going to become part of mainstream cancer care. Yeah. I'm just not sure when that's going to happen. Yeah. And, and I think I also want to acknowledge a lot of, um, first of all, our pet owners because so many of them are so devoted. It, it's incredible yeah. what they do and yeah. how devoted they are to the care of their animal. I'm, I'm often gobsmacked by the lengths that they'll take. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I, I also, you know, acknowledge the wonderful work of all the other vets out there because I do, you know, when I read here, Histories, I sometimes find, wow, you know, they're doing so much. They're really looking after these animals. Um, And so even though our approaches may be different, I I do really feel that a lot of our professional vets out there are so caring and 
so devoted to their, their clients and their patients. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. Well, yeah. I think we're um, we're a little bit over time, but it's been such an amazing chat. I, I just thought before we go, if you wouldn't mind um, leaving our listeners with um, the best way to get in contact with you and the clinic and, and any other um, resources that you wanted to leave them with, and then we'll say goodbye. Okay. Um, I guess if they want a little bit more specific information about some of the things that I've mentioned, like studies, um, that's fine. And probably the best way to get that is to, to email me personally, yeah. um, Karen at naturalvet.com.au. Um, and just um, be aware that I don't always get to my email straight away. <laughs> fine. And, and just sort of make sure that you refer to the fact that it's about the podcast. So mm-hmm. I know what it's about. Um, if if um, they want to sort of explore what we can do as a practice for their clients or for their patients, then probably the best thing is to actually contact reception, um, either by phone or by email. Mm-hmm. So um, 97125844 is the phone number or reception at naturalvet.com.au. Yep. Um, and then our, our beautiful receptionist can talk you through how we can help and, and what's involved. Um, and, um, you know, we sort of can do consultations with vets. Um, so we, we do do that um, or with, with their, their clients, whichever is their preference. Well, that all sounds... Excellent and very easy for our listeners to find you. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest today on the Pure Animal Podcast. I've really enjoyed all of our discussion and I've learned a lot myself. Before we go, are you able to leave our listeners with just a final pearl of wisdom um, on taking an integrative approach to cancer? I mean, I guess if I had to name my top four or five things that we consider, milk thistle, probiotics, Looking at the diet, um, looking at um, the, the sort of managing the stress and the lifestyle of the patient, mm-hmm. um, curcumin and mushrooms, I guess they'd probably be the, the top five that I think of, but they're not all suitable for every patient. Um, but, but I guess a they're the sort of few place. things that, you know, when I'm, if we're trying to keep it simple and Chinese medicine's a much harder thing to get into, then I just look at those few, particularly yeah. milk thistle. I think just about every patient that I see goes on to milk thistle um, and, you know, probiotic also just being such an easy thing to prescribe. Yeah. So those would be the few things um, that I'd sort of be sort of at the top of my list of things to reach for. Excellent. Well, that's a, a really great pearl of wisdom to leave our listeners with. Thank you very much. And I will let you get back to your um, probably busy day. And I hope that we can have you back one day on the podcast because it's been absolutely great talking to you. Thank you, Sarah. All right. Bye, Karen. Bye-bye. This is the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. Sarah Howard.